Um, Psalm 64. So David's speaking again. He says this, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint, preserve my life from the dread of the enemy and hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the torment of those who do iniquity, who've sharpened their tongue like a sword. They've aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from the concealment and the blameless. And suddenly they shoot at him, they don't even fear. They hold fast to themselves on an evil purpose and they talk of laying snares secretly and they say, who can see them? They devise injustices saying, we are ready with the well-conceived plot for the inward thought of the heart of a man are deep. Does anyone ever else read the Psalms and wonder if anyone liked David at all? <laughs> I feel like you are the most hated man on the face of the planet in the, in the course of history. It seems like many chapters of Psalms are David lamenting someone is literally trying to kill him. And here we are again, everyone hates David, right? They have arrows and spears and tongues of swords. It seems like this guy just can't get a friend. You know, he needs a good dog, I think. Everyone's always talking about him. They're laying traps for him. Uh, and it's a wonder that he didn't go crazy or lock himself in a safe room where no one could get to him. I think there are a couple quick observations that I want to make. And this is the first, is that first, David is always quick to run to God with the reality of his circumstance. David is always quick to run to God with the reality of his circumstance. This isn't breaking news. There isn't something that catches God off guard. David isn't telling him something that he doesn't already know that's just been discovered. God, you probably have been too busy to realize this, but right, David is coming to God with the reality of his circumstance. He's bringing his reality, his emotion, his anxiousness to the Lord, and he's placing it where it belongs, at the feet of God. I think one of the most important passages for believers, those already following Christ, is this instruction and promise that Peter reminds us of in a letter that he wrote in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. He says this, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you in proper time. What? And here's, the, here's the, uh, the instruction and promise. Casting all of your anxiety or your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. God invites us to cast all of our cares on him. I want that to sit for a second. Can you just get past the, the passage that I just quoted, the one that we all know, that we've all heard, and just let this sit for a second, that God invites you. He's asked you to cast your cares on him. There's an invitation and there's a promise where he says, I want you to do this. I want you to bring it to me. And I want to tell you why because I care about you. Isn't that incredible? That he invites us, the God of all creation invites us to bring those things to him. If you have a need that you haven't brought before God, you're robbing yourself of the peace that he promises. Let me, let me ask you this. What's keeping you from taking it to him? I'll tell you what sometimes keeps me from it. I'm probably the king of it is what it is, right? It is what it is. I say that often, too many times. 
And, and my mentality is often, it is what it is, and I'll just deal with it. Uh, recently, I, I had, we had this thing come, come up for our family and um, told Ed about it. We were talking about it. and He called me on, from vacation. He's like, man, uh, I was just praying about this first. Get you some friends that will pray for you on vacation. The second, he said, man, I was just praying about this thing. Have you heard anything on it? And I was like, nah, man. I just, you know, it is what it is. He's like, I don't know. I'm just praying for God to change that. Second, pray, pray for friends that will pray bigger prayers than you pray for yourself. <laughs> I don't know, man. Maybe God wants to do something in this. I said, you know what? You, you are so right. You're so right. It doesn't have to be what it is. We literally serve the God of creation who speaks things into existence, who, who real life story used a donkey to talk to someone. And sometimes we have this mentality of it is what it is. I do. But God invites us to say, but would you bring it to me? What if you let me say it is what it is? What if you let me say, it is what it is, but I've got this thing for you? What if that's what God wants to do? What if that's what God wants to say? And sometimes I, I think we just miss out on what God is doing because we just say, it is what it is. But what if like David, every time something comes across our plate, something comes across our lives, we step into the throne room of God and say, God, you know this already. This is so heavy on my heart. What if we changed our mentality on what we thought God wanted us to pray about, to think about, to, to, to converse with him about? I think when we come to God with the reality of our circumstance, we have the opportunity to ask him to intervene in that circumstance. We begin to talk and ask him to do only what he can do. I'm sure some of us in the room have an opportunity for that today. Second observation is that the attack on David is planned, it's organized, it's hidden, it's meticulous. And he says that their weapon of choice is their words. Think about that. David is saying that there's people who have planned and conceived this strategy that are deceptive, that are hiding, that are ambushing, and the way that they're doing it this time is not with swords and spears, but it's with their words. Notice what he says. He says, we have sharpened, they have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They've aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment and blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. What they're shooting at him is, is uh, malice, strife, just all kinds of um, uh, words and phrases and accusations that don't belong. And they're doing it in private. David recognizes that these words aimed at someone with malice hurt deeply, but not only do they hurt, they have the power to destroy. And this is why scripture speaks so much about what it means to stir up strife, malice, and gossip, because it doesn't just destroy a person, it will destroy a church. 
And in this circumstance, it's not just the church, it's the kingdom uh, that David is ruling over. David is his throne. And have you wonder, ever wondered why David is always in so much trouble? Why everybody's after his life? Why he wants, like literally, it's like one thing after another coming at him. Have you ever wondered why this is the case? If he's just a terrible guy that's not likable, maybe he's too good looking, too handsome. He, he, you know, like he's, they made the song, Saul's killed his thousands, David is 10,000. Maybe just everybody's jealous. Everybody hates David. He's got to go, right? That's not the thing. The thing is that the Messiah was promised to come through the line of David. And so the enemy wants to take out the line of David. So David, by stepping into the plan of God, became a target for the enemy. See how this works? And so David is constantly going to the Lord because he's saying, God, you, you have promised this plan and this, this thing over my life. I'm in your mission, in your plan, in your purpose. And these people are trying to subvert your will. David is pleading with God to do what he's already said that he's going to do. The enemy wants to take out David. He intends to do it, destroy the plan of God. And, and here's the incredible thing. Here, the enemy is planning. The enemy is planning on. So, so David is just a piece of the puzzle, right? He's just a piece of the puzzle that the Messiah is going to come through. The enemy is at work here. Think about this for a second. It's not just men using words to destroy the character of a person that they don't like. The enemy, the great enemy of the kingdom of darkness is employing words to take out the line of the Messiah. Oh, that should cause us to pause, to say if the enemy chooses to use words in an attempt to subvert the kingdom of God, what won't he use words for? That should cause us great carefulness. There was a Hawaii judge just recently, I don't know if you read this, that ordered a man to write dozens of compliments to his ex-girlfriend. And it's because he violated a protection order against her. He was sentenced to write 144 nice things to her. One for every uh, offense. He had texted his ex-girlfriend 144 times between 8.39 and 11.10 p.m., uh, he was arrested because it violated a restraining order. He said, I don't know whether I should cut off your fingers or take away your phone to stop it. But you will say nice things before I do. Now, the problem is, is with our words, many times they cannot be undone with just a nice thing. Many times our words have the power to destroy in a much much slower power to heal. You have to be careful. But David is realistic about a circumstance and he's also confident in his God. 
I love what David says next after this. He says this, so the first part of the passage, the first few verses are, are the circumstances, reality. And then he says this, but God will shoot an arrow at them and suddenly they'll be wounded. And so they will make him stumble and their own tongue is turned against them and all who uh, see them will shake their heads. I love this. David's saying, you know what? You fools, every time someone sees you, they're gonna go, what a dummy. They're just going to shake their heads at you. You know why? Because the creator of the universe is against you. And he says, so you come against me and I know that I'm in the center of God's will and he is for me. He is with me. He goes in front of me and behind me. Everywhere I turn, there's the face of God. He said, so when I step into your criticism, when I step into your strife, when I step into your malice, you know who else steps in with me? God. And he's going to shoot an arrow back at you. He's going to catch your arrow, shoot it back at you, and destroy you. And everyone is going to look and say, what a fool. He says, what a fool. He says, they're going to shake their head at you, and all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God. And I love this, and will consider what he has done. I love those words. They will consider what he has done. The righteous man will be glad in the Lord and they will take refuge in him and the upright and the heart will glory. David is sure as he looks forward that all men will declare the work of God and consider what he has done. David is sure that as all men look forward, they will consider what he has done. But I love this. You and I in this room today, we get to look back we get to look back at the cross and remember, God's faithful. God's been faithful. I mean, if he went to the cross, if he sacrificed his son for me, if he literally sacrificed his son for me, what won't he do? He will not abandon me. He will not destroy me. Where David says there's coming a day where men will look and they will see what he has done. But for you and I, we get to look back already at the cross and we say, God, what have you done? You've proved your faithfulness over and over and over again. There's a contributing editor um, of um, Christian Today magazine, Susan uh, Wondering. She's a swim instructor and, and she writes, she says, I spent a lot of time trying to get uh, little kids to float. And I would tell them to put their ears in the water and their belly buttons out of it. And I'd say, when I count to two, you'll feel my hands underneath you, but they, they're there. You won't feel them anymore, but they're there. And as soon as I say two, she says, most of the children would frantically jerk their knees up towards their chins, flailing their arms, dropping their full weight into my hands. And almost all people, she says, will float when they assume the posture of rest. But people who think they'll sink don't keep that posture for very long. She says, faith is about a posture of rest too. Many of us are terrified by the life of faith, needing always to feel support of the steady jobs, steady relationship, backup plans. But God, knowing that he signed us up for swim lessons, God intends to make a swimmer out of us all. He was teaching us all the while to rely on him in what seems to be a disaster. He's faithful. 
He's faithful to have us in his hands. That's just this, this um, sample of scripture, 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. The Lord is faithful and he will establish you, and watch, watch this, and guard you against the evil one. He promises this. He's faithful to do it. He'll guard you against the one who has schemes and plans for you. Lamentations 3.22, he says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. New mercies every single morning. Romans 3, verse 1. Then what advantage of a Jew, or what is the value of circumcision much in every way to begin with? Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. And what if some are unfaithful? Does faithfulness, uh, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. He says, when we're unfaithful, God's still faithful. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him. And this is what the Lord says about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He says this, I'm faithful to who I am and to who I have promised life. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, this saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny, he will deny us. And if we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. And he says this again in Psalm 36, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness, And we get to remember and respond to his faithfulness through something that he has given us called the Lord's Supper. And he did this the night that he was betrayed. And he said, in this, remember me. When you take the cup and you drink the wine or the juice, this is my blood spilled for you. When you take the bread, this is my body broken for you. This forces us, like David said, will one day consider what he has done. This forces us to consider what he has done. Forces us. Accepting of the forgiveness that he offers us. And the grace that he meets us with. Today, we're going to open the table uh, as soon as you're ready. You can take, but I would also offer a a warning or a pause. Say, Scripture asks us to take this very seriously. That we would not clench to sin and also participate in this that says, I'm taking full advantage of the forgiveness he offers. He says it, it literally, it, it's kind of like spitting in the face of Christ as he's on the cross. But this this table is not for the perfect. If it were, we would not even offer it. It's for those who say, God, I desperately want to follow you. I desperately want to follow and trust you. Uh, As Jesse plays for us, the tables will be open. Let me pray for us.
and we'll respond and worship with the Lord's Supper. You can take as you are ready and then we'll sing out these promises of God. Lord, we're so thankful for passages like this that cause us to look at the heroes that have gone before us and how they deal with circumstances that are difficult, realities that are full of despair and could consume them. They look at you and your faithfulness and find peace. Lord, I pray for those today that are in a circumstance and in the middle of a reality that they would not choose, that's not comfortable and not kind. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them even now and remind them of this great invitation that you care for them and invite their cares into your throne room. God, we would never believe that if you didn't prove it on the cross. How could we? How could we believe that the creator of the universe cares for us in a way that we can bring our cares to you except by the cross? That you proved to us, you demonstrated your love for us. So in that, Jesus, we are thankful, and we remember.